0: Hello everyone. This book is called The Valley of Secrets by Charmaine Hussey. Part 1. Old Fernley's Round Old Fernley the postman was out and about early, making deliveries in his small red van. It was a bright and breezy March morning as he sped along the Cornish lanes. The heavenly blue of the sky above broken by scurrying, puffy white clouds. He had been a postman on this route, man and boy, and he knew every inch of the way, the narrow lanes with their high green banks, the dark tree tunneled tracks through the woods, and the freedom of long gray tarmac strips across the wide wild open moor. Fernley loved the springtime flowers. Sadly, the snowdrops were over now, but the steep banks in the winding lanes were thick with yellow primroses. Calendine carpeted roadside verges as he rushed along on his way there were glimpses of tiny purple violets. There's nothing quite like the pleasure you get from plants and flowers, he said to himself. They certainly do cheer you up. And he sang as he drove along. The sun climbed slowly in the sky as Fernley made his rounds, stopping here and there to deliver the letters, pausing from time to time for a chat with a shepherd or farmer's wife high up on the moor. As the road was about to dip down, at the very edge of the moor, Fernley stopped his van and stepped out onto the roadway, He always stopped at that spot every morning and stood there gazing up into the sky, smiling at his favourite pair of buzzards, wheeling and mewing high above. He'd been watching this pair for many years now. They'd always gave him the greatest pleasure, broad, wide wings surfing the thermals, eerie calls floating on the breeze. The The buzzard's nest would be down in the woodland. Later, as summer was drawing on, pathetic, incessant mewing calls would echo through the valley below announcing the presence of hungry offspring. Occasionally, Fernie would catch sight of a novice flyer, flapping awkwardly about in the treetops. Then, miraculously, one late summer's day, when he stopped at his usual place, he would look up into the sky, high above him, and there would, there he would see three figures soaring in the perfect harmony. Back in his van, driving down into the valley amongst the trees, on that glorious spring morning, Burnley was singing happily until, that is, he rounded a corner and saw before him the high stone walls that surrounded the estate of Lansbury Hall. An uncomfortable feeling settled upon him, as it always did at that point in his round. He stopped his singing, slowed his van and coasted quietly along the lane, dark and wooded, past high mossy walls, the noise of his engine reverberating. It is the strangers of places, boy, Fernley muttered to himself. It gave him the shivers he had to admit it. Fernley was sure that there was something peculiar and something very mysterious behind the great gates of Lansbury Hall. He had wondered about it for many years, but he'd never been able to solve the mystery. Chapter two The Copper Brown Face Lansbury Hall had always had a very funny reputation the old estate had been taken over some 250 years before by the Lansbury family, outsiders who were looked upon by the local people as foreigners, or Emmits, as the Cornish call them. As such, they were not welcome. The Lansburys had become especially unwelcome when the locals had discovered that they were a kind of snobbish foreigners who would demolish the original house, an interesting and very ancient but certainly very old-fashioned manor house, and would build up in its place something very smart and modern modern that was for that time long ago then as if to add insult to injury the newcomers had even rejected the proper cornish name for the place they had started calling it by the highfalutin name of lansbury hall lansbury hall tis isn't proper it was said who do they think they be in truth the new house was not quite as grand as the Lansbury family would have liked to believe. As if to compensate for this, they had commissioned from a local blacksmith a set of the most magnificent gates to stand at the entrance to the drive. A copy of some very elegant gates from somewhere up country, Gates that would show the locals just how special the Lansbury's were. The trouble is, the locals said, they've got more money than cents. Yet over the years the local people had gotten used to the Lansbury family. They had come to accept them in a cautious kind of way. One of the Lansburys had even mar- married a local Cornish girl and that had helped a lot. But nevertheless, there were some strange stories about the hall, some of them very strange indeed. Fernie didn't know which to believe. There was only one certainty. Lansbury Hall was now the home of the last surviving Lansbury. An old man called Theodore. Fernley himself was, as they say, no spring chicken. The year was 1985. He'd stayed on at his job for as long as he could and was due for retirement the following year. But Mr. Theodore had lived on his own in total isolation and seclusion at Lansbury Hall since even before Fernley had been born. He must by now be a very old man. Nobody knew how he managed, but managed he obviously did for there was one place on Fernley's delivery route where he could just see the chimney tops of the hall and only yesterday he had seen smoke rising up from one of them. So the old fellow must still be alive and kicking, he had told his wife that evening. He'll be getting on for a hundred years old. He must be a very tough old bird. No one ever went into Lansbury Hall and no one ever came out. Fernley could count on his fingers on one hand the number of times over the years that letters had arrived for Theodore And when the letters had arrived he hadn't known what to do with them for there was no way of getting in. The great gates to the hall were always kept locked. All he could do was slip the letters nervously through the bars on the gate of the gate sorry and onto the ground inside and hope that someone would pick them up. In the village there were rumours, whispered stories of strange noises echoing out from the old estate through the woodland and across the moors. When Fernley was a boy, his parents had told him many times not to go anywhere near the place. Even in daylight it was unwise, his father had said. But of course he took no notice. Old people like his parents had had such stuffy ideas. Looking back now, still with discomfort, he remembered his foolishness. How unwise he had been in not heeding all the warnings. It had taken a strange experience to teach him respect for his father's advice. It had all happened when he was 10 years old. He'd been given a splendid new bicycle for his birthday. Not a brand new bicycle, of course, for times were very hard in those days, and such things as brand new bikes were quite beyond the reach of his family. But it was a new bike to him, a hand-me-down from an older cousin, lovingly checked over by his father and freshly painted bright green in the secrecy of a neighbour's garden shed. The bike was produced as a shiny surprise for Fernley's 10th birthday. It had become his pride and joy. During the summer holiday that year, he went off on many wonderful long rides, first pushing biscuits into his pocket, then waving happily to his mother, setting off across the moor, stopping from time to time to munch biscuits and to enjoy the countryside. Sometimes his bicycle rides just happened to take him past the walls of the Lansbury estate. Although he had been warned time and again to keep away from the place, he simply couldn't resist. He had discovered a number of places where he could heave himself up a steep stony bank and peer down into the grounds below. Mostly, there wasn't much to see, which was very disappointing, only thick overgrown woodland stretching away into the distance. But in one of the places he had discovered a most enticing old orchard with some very fine green-gauge trees. On one particular late summer's day, a day that he would never forget. Fernie was out enjoying a ride on his bike. It was a hot sunny day up on the moor. The further he went, the hotter it became, the hotter and drier he became. The more he thought about juicy fruit, big, fat, juicy green gauges, hanging on the trees in the wonderful orchard. Quite soon, as if by sheer coincidence, he found himself cycling in that direction. Getting over the wall had been simple, and sitting up in the branches with great Cool and comfortable and shady. The green gauges were just at their best. He was sitting there, feasting on the fruit noisily, munching the juicy flesh and spitting out the stones with pleasure. When something had made him stop. He raised his head and looked out. Up across and into the next tree. When he saw there, what he saw there gave him such a start. A face stared out from the leafy shadows. A very strange, copper-brown face. Only let out a gasp of dismay He didn't stop to look again Spluttering and almost choking He slithered in panic down the tree Scraping his hands and legs as he went Landing shaken at the bottom He made a frantic dash for the bank Heaved himself up over And grabbed his bike Then wavering from side to side He cycled desperately back to the village As fast as his jellied legs would take him Chapter 3 The Mysterious Letter Fernley was a very sore sight by the time he finally got back home. His hands and legs had bled quite badly. He was burning hot and wet all over, with squashed fruit mess all down his shirt. His face was a very bright, shiny red. After rushing indoors, he was promptly sick in the bathroom basin, to the great distress of his mother, but to the considerable delight of his small sister, Loveday. She always enjoys an exciting happening, especially if it was to Fernley's disadvantage. At tea time, he had been pleased to see her sitting uncomfortably at the table, with such big, round, frightened eyes, whilst he told his colourful story. The story of the strange, brown face. He made it all as vivid as possible. Fernley wasn't quite sure whether his parents believed the story or not. They glanced uncomfortably at each other. They tried to play it all down. Probably hit he- heat stroke and too many green gauges, his mother said with a forgotten forced smile. You'll forget all about it, my beauty. His father only gave him a warning glare, a sort of I told you so kind of a glare, and went on tucking into his pasty. Later Fernley realised that he had not been very impressed that they had not been very impressed by his story. Perhaps they thought he'd made it all up. The next day, he was so disappointed when he heard his mother talking in the garden. She was telling the story over the fence to the next-door neighbour, Mrs Pascoe, but she was emphasising all the wrong bits. Yes, sick as a gannet he were, he heard his mother say. Serves him right. He was sick as a gannet. He had hoped that the stories of his exciting adventure, for now that he was fully recovered. That was the way he liked to think of it would have impressed Mrs Pascoe's son, Walter, who was the same age as himself and something of a rival at school. But Walter and his skinny, sticky-faced little sister, Morwina, had stood there in the garden laughing. And so the incident had ended. Later on, looking back, Fernley couldn't help wondering why he had panicked and been so frightened, for he had to admit, if only to himself, that he had been badly frightened. I suppose it was guilt, he said to himself, being somewhere where you shouldn't be, trespassing and stealing fruit. P.C. Pengeli would probably call it, call it, Fernie might even be labelled a thief. P.C. Pengeli was a local bobby, a seemingly enormous man with extremely large boots. He cycled round his beat each day and in some mysterious way always knew or managed to find out who was doing what and where. He was well respected and popular with the locals, a very kindly man, as long as you did the things you should, and none of the things that you shouldn't do. But if you overstepped the mark and got into trouble with PC Pengelly, he was a force to be reckoned with, a force to be taken seriously. Fernley wanted above all things to avoid upsetting the policeman. He had seen the effect of the man's displeasure on a number of other boys, and he knew that they had not enjoyed the experience so he kept indoors for several days hoping the whole thing would blow over but that only meant he had more time for thinking the more Fernley thought about the face and the more he came to the conclusion that it had been a friendly face a very kindly amused brown face a face with very bright dark shiny eyes or had he seen a face at all after a time he wasn't sure perhaps he had imagined it as time went by Looking back, it all seemed rather like a dream, but it kept him away from Lansbury Hall. He had an odd feeling about the place and he never went anywhere near it again, not for a very, very long time. Not, that is, until he left school and was taking up his job as a postman. He found Somewhat to his dismay that his regular daily delivery route took him along beside the walls and right past the great gates. In the early days his round had always been made by bicycle, with the letters and packages in a big canvas bag that hung in a metal frame attached to the front of his bike. He had scuttled along beside the walls and past the gates as quickly as possible, trying not to look back. When Fernley had finally been given his first red delivery van, It had been absolutely wonderful. He could still remember so clearly the very first time he had sat in the van, and how he had driven the van with such pride. Shaking off his memories and coming back to the present, Fernley suddenly realized that he was almost level with the gates of the hall. Over the years, from the safety of his delivery van, he had been in the habit of slowing down as he passed the gate, always hopeful that he might see something that would give him a clue to the mystery. But he had found that looking through the gates didn't really help at all. He could only see a very short distance down the drive and the huge rhododendron bushes and trees that had once lined the drive presumably in orderly fashion were now so completely overgrown that in some places they touched the middle providing a depressingly dark dank screen. A screen of perfect privacy for whatever it was that lay beyond. In all the years that Fernley had been driving slowly past the gates and on the very few occasions when he had nervously slipped across the road to drop a letter through the bars, he had never seen any sign of anyone. He always looked as he drove, but he had long since given up expecting to see anything interesting. But on this occasion it was different. As he came to the gates he caught a glimpse of some kind of movement. Then as he slowed his van, a long brown arm appeared through the bars "'and something thin and white and rectangular "'was tossed out onto the road ahead. "'Fernley slammed his foot on the brake. "'The van came to a slithering halt, "'the engine stalling as it did so. "'The white rectangle caught by the breeze "'whirled, then settled and lay in the road. "'Well, I'll be blowed,' he said in amazement. "'Whatever's on?' "'He lowered his window and very quietly, "'then sat watching and listening intently.' There was silence, complete silence, as if the trees and the birds and whoever was all holding their breath and waiting, waiting for Fernley to do something. Opening the door of his van very carefully, Fernley sat staring across at the gates. His left eye had started to twitch, an irritating nervous reaction. He couldn't stand it any longer. He stepped out cautiously onto the rough tarmac. When nothing happened, he called out, Hello? Anyone there? Silence. And then again. Is there anyone there? Nothing. Pulling himself together with a grunt, he walked slowly round the front of the van. No wind stirred the trees now, and his footsteps seemed particularly no- peculiarly noisy in the crunchy kind of way. The white rectangle... Lay temptingly in the middle of the road. It was only a few yards away, yet something made Fernley hesitate. What a ninny I am, he said, finally going boldly forward and stooping down to pick up the letter. The envelope was clean and posh, a very good quality heavy white paper. Fernley was used to assessing these things. It was a superior letter, but the flap was, unfortunately, stuck down. He peered closely at the address beautifully written in an old-fashioned hand. Albert Pothelswaite, Esquire, he read. Pothelswaite and Pothelswaite, and then an address somewhere in London. Well, I never, he said to himself, climbing slowly back in the van. Fernley's left eye was slowing down now into an occasional twitch which was no longer troubling him. He sat studying the envelope thoughtfully. It was indeed a handsome envelope, but there was no stamp on it. He couldn't put it into his bag, not without a proper stamp. Now, fortunately, Fernley was a very kind man. Some other less caring person might simply have thrown the letter away, probably into the nearest ditch or chucked the letter into the van and simply forgotten all about it. But turning the envelope over in his hands with a thoughtful look on his face, Fernley came to a quick decision. He reached inside his jacket pocket, took out his wallet and found a stamp a rather tired-looking stamp from which he carefully removed fluff and hairs. Wetting it thoroughly with his tongue, he pressed it firmly onto the envelope. Then, with a satisfied smile on his face, he slipped the letter into his post bag. Birds sang in the woodland now, and trees moved gently in the breeze. The leaves whispered overhead and Fernley drove off down the lane, singing a cheerful song out loud, feeling rather pleased with himself at having done the day's good deed and what a lovely day it was. Perhaps he would just have enough time to stop off at home on his way past, to enjoy a coffee and crib with Morwina. What a funny old world it is, he said out loud to himself as he drove. Just to think that skinny maid turned into a such a pretty young girl, and what a fine wife she has made me all these many, young, many long years. It is indeed a very strange world but Fernley couldn't possibly have known quite how strange the world was. The world that was lurking behind the walls and the great gates of Lansbury Hall. Nor could he have imagined ever the wonderful chain reaction of events, which he himself had set in motion by kindly picking up the letter and sending it safely on its way. Chapter 4. An Old Fashioned Kind of Boy Stephen sat thoughtfully in his small bed sitting room in London. It was a drab room, the window looking out onto the discoloured brick walls and dirty chimneys of the city. Staring blankly round the room, he felt that even his favourite posters did very little to brighten the place. They only served to emphasise the dullness and the greyness of everything else around him, and especially On that miserable morning, the dull grey thoughts that filled his mind. Whatever was he going to do? How and where was he going to live now? If only I had a proper family, he said out loud to himself. If only I had my own real family and a proper home to go to. How many times had he said such things? But thinking and saying those things didn't help. In fact, it only made him feel worse, because it made him feel quite guilty. He'd had a very kindly upbringing in the children's home. He would always be grateful to his house parents. They'd loved him and looked after him well. Stephen sat there thinking about them and thinking about the past. He had so hated school, and of course he had never done well. He seemed to have such a lot of problems, problems with writing and spelling and maths, although his reading wasn't too bad. But the problems had always made him different, teased, withdrawn and rather shy, pretending to be one of the boys, yet sharing few of their ideas or interests. A very old-fashioned kind of boy, the teacher said, a loner and probably not very bright. Stephen had never succeeded at any normal school subjects, but his interest in wildlife and botany was so great that encouraged by his house parents, he had become knowledgeable on many aspects of the natural world. So much so that even this went against him. It only gave the other children more ammunition for taunting him and calling him horrible names like the boffin. It had all been one long, painful battle but his house parents had been proud of his few achievements. It was they who had arranged for him to take a special course in London, a course for pupils who had had difficulties, a course which focused on all his favourite subjects, biology, zoology and wildlife conservation. Stephen had enjoyed it enormously, even though joining the course had meant him having to leave the home and coming to live in this small, dingy room, with his landlady, Mrs. Johnson, keeping a close eye on him. The special course had just come to an end and Stephen was feeling at a loss. All the other students were busy packing, going back home to their families. He could go back to the children's home, but he didn't want to do that. So he couldn't help wishing all over again that he had a proper family and a proper home to go to. Once Stephen started thinking of families, he always started feeling troubled because he still didn't know who he was or where he had come from in the first place. He only knew that he'd been abandoned as a small baby, left with a childminder by a pretty well-dressed young woman who had said that her baby's name was Stephen. But no one had ever returned to claim him. The woman, according to the childminder, had a funny foreign accent But even though she had left a surname, the authorities had never managed to trace her. She had simply disappeared. What sort of mother would do such a thing? She couldn't have loved her baby, could she? As Stephen had grown up, he had tried hard not to wander and worry too much about his background, tried not to care about it at all, tried to pretend that it didn't matter, which was easier said than done. If the authorities at the time hadn't been able to trace his mother, he couldn't see much point in attempting to do so himself. He had come to realise over the years that he had to make the best of things. It was just the same now. He would have to make the best of things. All the same, he couldn't help wishing. Getting up and crossing the room, Stephen opened the window and gazed out. Although it was June, the sky was dark. Thick low clouds are pressing down on a forest of sooted chimney pots. The rain, falling heavily, now splashed in the black, blackened oily gutters and cars as they rushed through the streets below. With all their noise and foul fumes, shot filthy water onto the pavement. All his life, Stillven- Stephen had longed for space. He had dreamed of open space and freedom. He had longed to live in the countryside with clean, fresh air fields and woods. He had longed for the greenness of it all. Now he wanted it more than ever. If he stood on tiptoe he could just see the tops of a number of trees standing in, in sad and grimy groups in the small square several streets away. You couldn't pretend they were green, but nevertheless it was comforting just to know that they were there. At least a small piece of the natural world was only a few steps away from his room. During the past year, Stephen had managed to make two or three trips out into the countryside. On each occasion, he had returned to his room with arms full of foliage. Other passengers in the bus had not been too amused having him sitting next to them with old man's beard dangling over their heads and beech twigs sticking into their ears, but he hadn't cared. The wonderful form and colour of the foliage had decorated his dowdy room. It had given him weeks of pleasure There was nothing like plants and leaves and flowers to brighten a place and cheer you up. Thinking about the trees and the foliage made him think about the forests. Every time you picked up a paper or turned on the radio or even the television, there it was. The news of destruction of the world's great forests. Once it had seemed fashionable to care, but was anyone doing anything now or had they just got used to it? He paced up and down the room, overwhelmed by the sickening feeling of helpless anger and frustration which always overcame him when he thought of chopping and burning. He stood at the last open window gazing dreamily into the gloom, imagining himself as he often did walking through some mighty forest, the tall trees reaching high above, the green depths stretching on and on. A loud knocking at his door brought him sharply back to reality. "'There's a letter for you, Stephen,' he heard Mrs. Johnson's voice. "'Who on earth could this be now with such business like long brown envelope?' He sat down on the edge of the bed, turning the envelope over in his hands, surveying the postmark very closely, savouring the moment, and wondering then, slitting it carefully open at one end, nothing with surprise—oh, sorry— noting with surprise the heading some solicitor somewhere in London he'd read the letter slowly out loud dear sir please attend this office at some time in the near future when you will learn something to your advantage office hours are strictly from 10 till 12 in the morning and from two till four in the afternoon weekdays only yours faithfully then followed a scribbled unreadable signature Stephen was intrigued by the letter. He read it through carefully several times, each time feeling that if he had read it through yet again, he might find in in it some vital clue as to what it was about. There was no clue. He made a decision. He would have to go and find out about it. He would do that that very afternoon. Chapter 5. Through the Archway After a hasty lunch and a quick look at the A to Z, Stephen set out through London streets with the mysterious letter tucked in his pocket. As he walked, he wondered and worried. What on earth could it mean? Had somebody finally traced his family? Surely it must be something like that. Though that would be much too good to be true. Yet it seemed like the only possible explanation. Why else would a solicitor write to him? The further Stephen went, the more excited he became. Everything seemed to be looking up, but the weather was improving. The clouds were thinning to show small patches of blue sky and the sun would soon be breaking through. Stephen looked anxiously down at himself as he made his way along the streets. He knew that he wasn't properly dressed for visiting a smart solicitor's office. It made him feel uncomfortable, but he'd done the best he could. He was of medium height, rather slight built, with a thick thatch of straight brown hair. His eyes were funny sort of colour people usually called hazel. He was altogether rather ordinary looking, he supposed. He still longed to be bigger and taller and much more dashing in appearance. And then there was the problem of spots. A number of the pesky things always seemed to be in attendance, scattered across his forehead and chin, a source of continual dismay and scowls whenever he looked at himself in the mirror. He had waged a constant war against them, with the whole battalion of special preparations guaranteed to wipe spots out, but all, alas, apparently useless. People said that Stephen had the kind of, a kind face and nice eyes. He supposed he ought to be grateful for that. Somehow, it didn't seem to help. What he didn't realise was that he had a very beautiful smile, a rare smile, which when it happened lit his eyes and transformed his face, making him look almost handsome. Years of training at the children's home and the continual insistence that you must be clean and tidy had finally made some impression upon him somewhere along the line. So before he had left home that afternoon he had carefully washed his hands and face and thoroughly brushed his teeth, He had also had a go at his hair which never behaved the way it should. Free at last from the rules of the children's home he had been trying to grow it longer, but there was always that difficult bit at the front which would insist on hanging down over his forehead. He had swung it back and into place, running a hand through his hair as he did so. An old familiar, well-tried gesture which had become a nervous habit. Clothing is always such a problem, Stephen had mumbled to himself whilst preparing himself for the visit, trying to make up his mind what to wear with a heavy frown on his face. Which of his three pairs of jeans looked the best? Which was the newest? Which was the cleanest? His old green parka would have to do, but he didn't have anything else. Provided he watched where he walked and avoided all the puddles he could wear his old black trainers, which were the tidiest shoes he had, but not exactly waterproof. His old pair of leather boots creaked in the most embarrassing way. He certainly couldn't face wearing those. He had recently seen and greatly fancied a splendid pair of black leather boots in a shop not far from his lodgings, but the price had put put them right out of his reach, and so, as usual, he would have to make do. Stephen was heading for Lincoln's inn, which was right next door to the law courts. It was an area in which many important lawyers and barristers had their offices or chambers, as Stephen knew that they should be called. On arrival, he discovered that most of the buildings were large and elegant, with spacious courtyards and fine trees. On the wall beside the entrance to each set of chambers, there was a big bank of brass plates, each plate inscribed with the name of the barrister smart polished plates the smart sounding names steven co- steven's confidence dwindled the solicitor's office was bound to be posh he wandered around feeling more and more lost unable to find the correct address no one seemed to have heard of the place having wasted so much time he was getting worried if this went on he was sure to be late the office would close at four o'clock He couldn't bear the horrible thought of having to wait another day before finding out about the letter. At last, turning in through an old stone archway, he found himself in a small cobbled yard. This had to be the right place. He'd recognised the name of the archway but Stephen lost more valuable time scurrying around the yard, checking first two rather grand doorways only to find himself eventually standing in front of a scruffy old door. The paintwork was chipped and the fittings unpolished. It was not at all as he was expecting. Puffed and anxious, he knocked at the door, but almost before his hand left the knocker the door was pulled open from within, and a girl came running out. A girl with a mass of dark brown hair and friendly smiling blue-grey eyes. Hello! She called out brightly to Stephen and darted quickly past. And goodbye! She rushed away. Stephen had jumped to one side embarrassed. He wasn't good with girls. They seemed like a different species to him. A young man wearing a pinstripe suit appeared in the doorway. The hallway behind him looked dark and narrow. Stephen could smell dank, musty air. It seemed the most unlikely place. He pulled the letter from his pocket, showing it to the young man to make quite sure he was in the right place. Oh yes, said the man, glancing at the letter. This is the place you're looking for. He had a very broad grin on his face. He seemed to be finding something amusing. You'll have to go right to the top of the building. He pointed to a flight of stairs, and the best of luck to you, you're certainly going to need it. He called out laughing in a peculiar way, then disappeared into a side room, closing the door very firmly behind him. If Stephen had had more time to think, he might have wondered about the man's words. As it was, he was so pleased to have found the right place and so anxious about the time that he didn't stop to think at all, but sped as quickly as he could up the steps and winding stairs. On the very top landing he found the door beside the... the door and beside the door an old brass plate, a dull, dirty brass plate that obviously hadn't been polished for some time Stephen stood peering at the plate, out of breath and panting hard, frowning and trying to read the inscription. He stood back with a smile. Yes, this was the place that he wanted. This was the name he'd been looking for. Chapter 6 Posslethwaite and Posslethwaite Solicitors The one and only Mr Postlethwaite. Stephen stood for several moments outside the door of Postlethwaite and Postlethwaite, getting his breath back and looking anxiously at his watch. It was nearly five minutes to four. Phew, I'm just about in time. I hope it's going to be all right. He knocked nervously at the door. A muffled voice came from within, so he opened the door and stepped into the room. During the journey there Stephen hadn't thought much about what he had expected to find in the offices of Pothelswaite and Pothelswaite but whatever he might have expected to see, he could never have imagined the extraordinary sight that met his eyes. His mouth dropped open in amazement as he stood in the doorway staring. The office was a large room. It was well lit by two deep windows and by a huge skylight set in the roof high above. The sun breaking through the clouds at last shone down through the skylight and into a wilderness of greenery. Stephen had never seen anything like it before. The walls of the room were almost certainly completely hidden by what could only be described as a ram- as rampant plant growth. The room glowed green with lush vegetation, enormous leaves with their polished surfaces shining brightly in the sun. Long, pale, elegant, transparent bracts shimmering gently in the light, giant ferns with their pointy fingers poking boldly out towards him, creepers with long grey leathery trunks reaching up to the skylight itself, only to hang back down again in a wild profusion of tangled growth. Along one of the walls there was something that looked like it might be a large bookcase, but that was almost totally obscured by the writhing mass of climbing plants. These, like the rest of the plants in the room, were growing out of a series of large pots. The warm, damp air which engulfed Stephen and seemed to hold him transfixed was filled with a heavy perfume. Here and there he could see strange flowers, vividly coloured, exotic blooms hanging down on long stems, peeping out from behind the foliage and thrusting out from between the leaves. In the very middle of all this, seated at a large desk and peering out through a gap in the foliage, was a very ancient man. His long pale face had thin sharp features and a wispy mass of pure white hair stuck out round his head like a halo, spreading down and around his shoulders. Had the old man been dressed in clothing more suited to his surroundings, the the scene as a whole might not have struck Stephen as so odd. But the old lawyer's clothes looked quite absurd in this most, most unusual setting, for he was properly attired for a gentleman of his profession. Black leather jacket, very clean and tidy, if a little shiny. A high collar and a formal tie as he tottered to his feet and leaned forward across the desk. Smart pin trousers could be seen. Stephen closed his mouth with the gulp, it was all he could do to hold back the laughter that was welling up inside him. But the smile that was creeping onto his face was well, very quickly wiped away by the old man's angry expression and by his words which were far from welcoming. "'And what do you think you're doing up here walking in and disturbing my plants?' the old man asks in a menacing whisper. "'No one but no one comes in here and disturbs my plants at this time of the day and I'm just about to see them all.' I must ask you to leave immediately." As Stephen opened his mouth to respond to apologise for his late arrival, the old man threw up an agitated arm, pressing a long bony finger across his lips. He jiggled about behind the desk, feverishly hushing Stephen down. "Shh, Don't speak so loudly, he hissed. My plants aren't used to it, and they don't like it. He glared angrily at Stephen. There, there, my old friends, hush now, hush, hush. He was looking anxiously all around the room making the gentle hushing sounds. Stephen looked slowly around at the plants as if he expected to see some reaction. All was still and very peaceful. The only th- sounds were the murmur of traffic and the steady drip, drip, drip of a tap at a sink in a corner of the room. With a loud sigh and heavy scowl, the old man sat back down in his chair. "'Well, I suppose you'd better come and tell me what it is you want, "'but I certainly can't spare you much time. "'Close the door behind you and do it very quickly and very quietly,' he added with a glare. It was "'It's a very crucial time, you know. Very crucial time indeed!' Having closed the door as quietly as possible, Stephen tiptoed across the room and came to stand nervously in front of the big desk. The old man was sitting in an almost trance-like state, staring into the foliage that overhung the desk. Following his gaze, Stephen found himself looking at a peculiar plant. A large earthenware pot was standing beside the desk in a low trough filled with water. Quite a good sized tree grew up from the pot, because its branches reaching and fanning out well above Stephen's head. This in itself was unusual and interesting, but the thing that caught Stephen's eye and held his attention was the most extraordinary plant. A plant with thick fleshy green and scarlet leaves. It seemed to be growing out of the tree trunk. One long limb grew over the desk and from the limb there sprouted a bud. A huge, fat, cream-coloured flower bud. Now, what do you want with me, young man? The hissing voice made Stephen jump, and he dragged his eyes away from the plant. Are you Mr Pothelswaite? he asked nervously, running her hand through his hair. The scowl of the aged, wrinkled face deepened. I'm not merely a Mr Pothelswaite, he retorted. I am the one and only Mr Pothelswaite. The sharp old eyes glared, challenging me. "'Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realise, um...' Stephen stammered. "'Well, will you please get on with it quickly, young man? I have already told you that I haven't any time now.' He glanced hurriedly back at the flower bud. "'Come along now, what is all this about?' Stephen fumbled in his pocket, drawing out the now-crumpled letter. His hands felt odd and rather shaky as he made an effort to flatten it out to make it look presentable. He held it across the desk. You sent me this letter, he said as boldly as he could, and I have come as you asked. I am Stephen, Stephen Lansbury. Chapter Seven, The Will. Mr. Albert Pothelswaite, lawyer for many, many more years than he cared to remember, propped his spectacles on the end of his nose and took a quick look at the letter. Then he took a good look over the top of his spectacles at the figure standing in front of him. Yes, so you are, he said at long last. I can see that you are indeed Stephen Lansbury. The old man's face relaxed a little. I think you had better sit down. You may take that chair, his bony finger indicated. But watch how you go, he added sharply. Very gently, Stephen lifted up the long dangling arm of an exotic and colorful plant, was hanging over the back of the chair and down across the seat. He draped it carefully along the front of the desk. Mr Pothelswaite seemed to approve. He nodded comfortably, his fierce expression softening considerably. You like my plants then, young man, he eyed Stephen over the top of his glasses. Oh yes, very much, Stephen answered quickly and truthfully. Good, 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 good. The old man's voice faded away as he shuffled through a pile of soggy documents. Stephen sank lower in his chair, waiting quietly but anxiously. Ah oh yes, here it is. This is your great uncle Theodore's will. Stephen shot upright in the chair. The old man waved the large folded document tied up with a narrow pink ribbon. Stephen stared at him in amazement. Then he stared at the documents clutched in the old and gnarled hand. My, My what? He gasped. My great uncle Theodore? Who on earth is he? Why, Theodore Lansbury, of course, your great uncle on your father's side. The old man was clearly exasperated. I didn't even know that I had an uncle. I didn't know I had any relatives. Stephen was starting to feel rather funny. A long, cold shiver shook his whole body. One of those shivers that when people say that there's somebody walking over your grave, Well, you have, Mr Porthoswaite snapped back, or rather I should say you had. He died in the spring and this is his will. Now here is a copy for you. He continued folding the will and slipping it into an extraordinary long brown envelope. You must take it with you and you must read the contents. Please make sure that you note them carefully. If you don't fulfil the conditions of the will, if you don't do what it says you should do, And if you do things that it says that you shouldn't, you will lose everything. Lose everything? What do you mean? Stephen asked, Why, you lose your inheritance, of course, boy. Stephen felt quite stunned and confused. I don't understand. Can you please explain? Who was great Uncle Theodore and how did he know about me and why haven't I heard about him before and... I'm very sorry the old man interrupted but I haven't got time for all that now. It's a very very long story and all you need to know is in the is that under the terms of Theodore Lansbury's will you now inherit Lansbury Hall. It will be your home to own and to look after provided that you do all the right things of course. He narrowed his eyes glaringly at Stephen over the top of his spectacles. Take the will he added more kindly. "'and here is a one-way ticket to Cornwall. "'You must get down there as quickly as possible "'so that you can take care of things.' "'Oh, please, Mr Pothlesswaite,' Stephen begged. "'I don't understand. I don't understand.' "'His mind was a whirl with dozens of questions, "'but then, to Stephen's utter dismay, "'the old lawyer suddenly added in a super polite "'and professional voice, "'Thank you very much for calling,' and simply turned away. "'It was ludicrous.' Stephen sat there on his chair completely stumped and very upset. He pushed back the irritating lock of hair that had fallen as usual across his forehead, running his hand through his hair as he did so. Please, Mr Pothless, wait, he begged. Panic began to rise inside him. Here was the chance that he'd always wanted, the chance to find out about his family, yet it looked as if the interview was over. He'd hardly begun to ask any questions let alone get any answers. "'I just don't understand,' he tried again with a note of desperation in his voice. "'What do you mean, take care of things? What things?' Mr Pothelswaite turned back towards him and said with a loud and impatient sigh, "'I don't have time to discuss it now. You'll find out about it quite soon enough.' "'Oh yes,' he added with a sinister knowing little smile. You'll find out about it soon and I'm sure you will cope with it, one way or another. What you must remember is there is very little money left. You will have to manage as best you can." He glared at Stephen then, after fumbling amongst the papers, he drew out a small package. Here is £100 for you to be going on with. I shall send you more money in due course when everything has been sorted. Now I can't, I can't tell you any more. You must get off down there as quickly as possible." This was clearly the cue for Stephen to leave. The old man propped his elbow on the desk and sunk his chin in his hand, turning his whole attention away from Stephen. He sat there gazing at the flower bud. That, so it seemed, was the end of the interview.